If you will, turn back in your Bibles to the book of Numbers, chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12, we are on our obvious 28th reflection and consideration of the wilderness sojourn of the people of God, headed from Egypt to the promised land. And our overarching theme for the year is arise, move, and go. For those of you who understand that term, it has to do with being in sync with God. Knowing when God is telling you to sit and be still and know that he is God. And then rising up and moving when he is Lord. His lordship is to drive you in a direction towards his will and his purpose in your life. His rule as God is to sit you still and show you how he can make a way out of no way. Sometimes you're going to be in trouble sitting still. At other times, you're going to be in trouble making your way to the promised land. But all the troubles are really designed to do is to build your relationship and walk with God. That really is what it is. And today we want to press into something that I think will come home readily, but I'm hoping to see our perspective broadened enough to comprehend God's larger will for our lives. The title is Arise, Move, and Go, Family Matters. You can look at that term in two ways. Family matters. It really does. And our world does not believe that. If it did, it would promote the family. If it did, it would honor the organic divinely structured, planned, and purposed utility of a man and a woman being the origin and grounds of the whole human race. If it believed that, it would support that structure. It does not. And so what we often find is that family does not matter. We can't always blame it on the government. Numbers chapter 12 highlights for us two people The first time we meet Aaron, as you guys recall, he was silently, submissively serving at Moses' right hand. So when God had called Moses out to deal with Pharaoh as his representative, Moses was struggling with leadership. And he said to God, I'm not the one. And God said, well, go get your brother Aaron. He can speak for you. But as far as we know, Aaron did not do any speaking when Moses was called to confront Pharaoh. Read your Bible, it's true. But what we should learn about uh, Aaron is this. He was, for a season, a silent, submissive servant to his brother. A silent, submissive servant to his brothers. That is something for you and I to mark. It's not always your turn to speak. And it's not always right to be speaking. Sometimes the best testimony is just simply silently serving. This is really true. And so you and I saw how Aaron was just there with Moses. And out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, you bear testimony to the truth if you're men of character. And and this is remarkable for Aaron because Aaron is actually Moses' older brother. Okay, and so here Moses is being called by God, as we shall see in a moment, and his big brother is really second in command and really called to say nothing. We just learned that God said to Aaron and Miriam that Moses talked to God face to face. 
And so it wasn't like Moses wasn't competently capable of speaking to Pharaoh. He was the one who said, the Lord said, let my people go. Now I'm laying a foundation for you here for us to understand what we mean by family matters. We met Aaron submissively serving at the right hand of his little brother Moses as they oppose the tyrant. Good and well. The first time we meet Miriam, the second oldest, Aaron is first, Miriam is second, Moses is third. We meet Miriam celebrating with tambourines at the victory of God over the destruction of Egypt in Exodus chapter 15. Do y'all remember that? So you got Aaron silently serving in submission and you've got Miriam celebrating a victory that her two brothers, by the grace of God, facilitated by the power of God. All well and good as they come out of Egypt. But then it wasn't that far along in the journey, somewhere around three months. We're at 15, 16 months now into the wilderness sojourn, as you know where Aaron shows us that he is this kind of weak, people-pleasing leader who is operating out of stints of what we might call neo-sort of postmodern irrationality. Aaron, Moses said to Aaron, Aaron, what is this all about? And what did Aaron say? Well, we just threw this gold in the river and out came a god. Now, if that's not irrational, I don't know what is. So all of a sudden we have a peek into the character and flaw of Aaron, do we not? He's kind of like our politicians today, sticking his hand in his mouth and looking to see which way the wind blows. And then he's willing to go that way. All that to say is God saves sinners. You need to know that because probably some of us are no different than Aaron. And now we have Miriam after 14 months of silence, opening her mouth in a kind of toxic femininity, wanting to play the race card with her little brother and do something that is so abhorrent to God that his intervention is a major lesson for you and me today as to what matters with God. You see, the people of God can get stupid enough to think that the only thing that matters is what matters to them. And this is what we're about to learn, because to whom much is given, much is what? Right. And we're about to learn something about how leadership will quickly be dealt with by God when it acts a fool. And the account here for you and I have three major uh, points and then some sub points that I think will work for us. Under point number one, I want you to consider with me this proposition, the deep damning delusion of jealousy. The deep, damning delusion of jealousy. So the word of the Lord is right and all of his works are done in truth. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible says the words of the Lord are right words. They are pure. They're called wisdom and truth. And when we listen to them, God will teach us something. One of the reasons why people don't like the Bible is because it actually raises up a mirror on our character. And one of the fundamental strains, one of the fundamental strains that we have in our society is a propensity to jealousy and envy. One of the fundamental strains we have is a propensity to that. You and I need to know that. It's in our members. It's in our, it's in our makeup. It's in the legacy of humanity. So I want you to understand this as we deal with points number one under verse one and two. And Miriam 
and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman who had, whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. Now, what does this have to do with the price of tea in China? But it has a lot to do with it in this regard. What God is doing is allowing us to see how vain we can be, even in the midst of God's mission in our life. How distracted we can be by human propensities that have nothing to do with the grandeur of God's purpose in our life. How shallow we can be in a situation where God has promoted us to levels of dignity that most people will never be in. I am stating that Aaron, along with Miriam, is in the most prodigious position of human beings that could ever be. To be part of a movement, a destiny, a worldwide event, a lifelong historic event where they are part of the potential of a dynastic family. To ruin it all by the pettiness of jealousy. Am I making some sense? Look at, the, look at the disproportionate largeness of their position over against now the emergence of what we would call super petty attitude, a kind of ghetto mentality that doesn't work anywhere on the planet. What in the world is Miriam doing rising up in the middle of an excursion where they are only a month out from possessing the promise wanting to play the dozens and pull the race card on her little brother. I was thinking to myself, how long has it been that Miriam and Aaron have been struggling with who Moses is? Y'all gonna have to keep up with me because you know I'm always going somewhere. The word of the Lord is right. All of his works are done in truth. And the Bible makes it very clear that out of the heart proceeded all manner of evil. And the light of God's law is designed to help you and I see that if it wasn't for the grace of God, there go I. And it's really important for you to capture this because jealousy is a poisonous root that is covered over by all kinds of hyper sugary type of allure. Human beings love being jealous yes, sir. Yes, sir. and jealousy is irrational. So as we work this through under point number one, the damning delusion of, of jealousy, there's a number of things that we have to really take into account while we're thinking through this. The absurdity of jealousy. Have you ever thought about how absurd jealousy is, particularly for human beings who didn't begin this thing and won't end it? What I'm talking about is life and the world and you being in it. And you and I are a blip on the Richter scale of human experience. We didn't create the world. We don't sustain the world. We don't uphold the world. We don't maintain the world. We can't protect the world. We won't keep the world. We won't finish the world. Who in the world are you? But here we are rising up in such a way now that we are about to attack a major pillar and substratum of God's divine purpose. You see, what they're about to do is bring the whole thing down on the head of Moses. See, when you engage in audible sort of plays like this, this is an audible. This is an out of their mouth heard by everybody in all the tribes play of absolute ridicule and scorn of the man that God has used to lead them out, you're talking about bringing the whole house down. 
it always starts with scandal. It always starts with gossip. It always starts with a distortion of the facts. It always starts with a malevolence of intentionality. It always starts with a man or a woman having a very creepy agenda of self-importance. See, the idea of jealousy, you and I must know, has its origins in the celestial realm. You and I must know that jealousy and envy, which are two sides of the same coin I'm going to unpack, has its origins in the angelic realm. Bible-believing Christians know that jealousy and envy started with the devil. You must know that. You must know that that creature made by God rose to arrogant heights of self-importance saying, I want to be like the Most High God. Take God's authority. Y'all keeping up with me? And this is why it's so dangerous for you and so dangerous for me to drink the elixir, the delusive elixir, of jealousy. It's a satanic root. It's a curse. And we know this because it showed up as early as Eve buying into the proposition of the devil that she can be like God. That was a reach of jealousy. You guys keeping up with me? And then it showed up again in their son Cain, who didn't like the fact that Abel had favor with God and his jealousy led to envy. And that envy led to the murder of Abel. And then we moved down the road just a little bit. And we saw this same hostility working in the life of the 11 brothers of Joseph. All because Joseph had had favor shown to him before God. Now they want to rise up in jealousy, turn in envy and slay their brother. And this moved on down the road to David because David had brothers. And when God had called David to step in the gap because of their weak, whippy fear of Goliath, They wanted to push David to the side. That's why David said, when my mom and my daddy forsake me, the Lord will take me up. I'm getting ready to show you something here because this culminates in a very clear prophetic picture for those of us who know that the Bible is about Jesus. This is always about the destruction of the one person that God has called. His name is Jesus. He is our big brother. He is our savior. He is our master. He is the one mediator between God and man. And everybody that is not like him want to pull him down. And it's rooted in jealousy and envy. What is jealousy? May I help you? Jealousy is the rotten disposition of the soul. It's a rotten disposition of the soul that is seeking to possess and control and dominate something which it doesn't have a right to. I want you to capture that. Jealousy is the rottenness of the soul. It's rooted in insecurity. It's rooted in low self-esteem. It's rooted in a misperception of oneself. It can also be rooted in trauma. But jealousy is definitely the rottenness of the soul to want to unlawfully take what somebody else has to itself as if it has a right to do it. Or under the false assumption that in doing it, they have a better right to be in a position of being the object of affection and notoriety by everyone else than the person or the thing that they are seeking to take. Are you keeping up with me? So here's the definition. Here's the definition of it. The definition is really to prosecute something. The idea of jealousy is to prosecute, pursue a thing, to overtake it, to dominate it and control it. Envy 
is the attempt after jealousy to harm the thing that it is taking possession of. Envy is the rotten fruit of jealousy. Jealousy is something that dwells in all of our bosom. Envy is the fruit of it. Did that make some sense? Like jealousy is a consequence of, jealousy is a consequence of our having levels of insecurity in ourselves, And you know it internally, you want to be loved. You want to be noticed. You want to be, we see it in our kids, do we not? We see it in our kids. And so we recognize that they need to be approved of. They need to be affirmed. Do they not? Right. But you can't turn them into monsters by telling them lies like you can be anything that you want. You never tell your kids that. Never set your kids up for failure. Don't tell them they can do anything. God cannot even do anything. God can't lie. God can't fail. God can't change. God can't create something bigger than himself. There are things that we cannot do. All of us might rise to levels of success in our life where we achieve certain goals, but we will never be better than anyone else in everything that we do. We will always come short of that. Am I making some sense? So the notion of telling your Children, they can do anything is to create the potential of what I am calling here a malevolent narcissist who lives in an unreal world, thinking that it should rise to heights that it will never, ever achieve at all, only to plummet into despair and then become the kind of sociopathic person that people that think that they should run the world do. This is really important for you and I to know. Now, having stated this before your hearing, wouldn't it be a plausible thought for you, for us to go, how long has Aaron and Miriam been thinking like this? Isn't that plausible? Like they didn't wake up thinking like that. It wasn't water in Sinai. Those, 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 those wadis in Sinai didn't have strange chemicals in it for Miriam and Aaron to wake up saying, you know what? We hate Moses. No, under point number one, three quick sub points. Let me help you capture them so we can go on. Let us understand that the goal of jealousy is to disorient reality. Here's the reality. Moses was called first. Did y'all get that? Is this just a fact of history? Moses was called first. Aaron wasn't called first. Miriam was not called first. Moses was called first. Let's just get the facts straight going to help you with this. It's very clear. And so far, what you, so far with that, what you find is your Bible, in your Bible, whenever God is talking to Mary, uh, to Aaron, Moses, he uses Moses' name first, then he uses Aaron's name, and then he uses Miriam's name. Did y'all get that? He goes, Moses, Aaron, Miriam. That is not their chronological order. That's their order of calling. Because God always exalts the humble and abases the proud. He always puts the second in charge and takes the first and makes him lower. He always lets the one that appears to be the most vulnerable and the most susceptible to be the one in the lead. Y'all got that? Like Adam is first, Jesus is second, but Jesus is really first. So God always does that. He'll take the last and make it first, and then he'll make the first to be the last. 
Now, this order of relationship carries a lot of significance. But first and foremost, it was simply something that Aaron and Miriam should have captured. So there was a season when God wasn't in their life. Is that true? And then God shows up. But guess who he shows up through? LeBron. Little bro comes in with a message saying it's time to go. Did that make some sense? Now we have our drama of redemption, don't we? Because I can imagine Aaron saying, well, why didn't God call me first? And then here come Miriam, which is older than Moses too. Well, why didn't he call me first? That's what we get in verse two. So I want, to, I want you to see this. This is Psalm 65, verse four. Moses was called first. This is what the psalmist says. I want you to capture this. Blessed is the what? Blessed is the man whom you choose, O God, and causes to approach unto you in order that he may dwell in your what? Did God call Moses on the backside of the wilderness in the burning bush? The Lord Jesus spoke out of that bush and said, Moses, Moses, Aaron and Miriam are nowhere to be found. God had called Moses first. Y'all got that? But in calling Moses, he's calling them too, just in the same way in which God called the Lord Jesus to be the redeemer of the world. All that are in Christ are called too, but Christ is first, is he not? Moses here is also first in this sense. So our outline says Moses was called first, but what? So were you. Y'all got that? So were you. Anyone that's in Christ Jesus is called right along with Christ. But make no mistake, you're not Jesus. You're not even close to Jesus. I mean, you might be close, but in a lot of ways, you're not close at all. We can accept that paradox, right? I'm not Jesus, but in a lot of ways I am. But in a whole lot of ways, I am not. Just accept it. That's what John the Baptist said. I am not the Christ. I confess and I deny not. I confess I am not the Christ. But he was the forerunner of the Christ. God had set him up. Sub point B, Moses was called to lead. He was called to lead. This is what the scriptures are clear of. He's called to lead. And that's why Moses was drawn to God. He was called to be the lead of this larger eclectic calling. I love this. This is Psalm uh, Micah chapter six, verse four. And now Micah is a prophet way down the line, uh, 500 years before Christ. And listen to the order salutis. For I brought you, Israel, up out of the land of what? And I redeemed you out of the house, uh, out of the house of slaves. And I sent before you, here's the order, salutis. Moses, Aaron, and who? Lock it in. He didn't call Aaron. He didn't call Miriam. He called Moses. And once he established Moses as the leader, Moses gets the two witnesses of his brother Aaron, even though Aaron is older, and of his sister Miriam, even though Miriam is older. Chronology has nothing to do with salvation or usefulness. Am I making some sense? Although in our family matters, we often like to pull rank and, and play authoritarian roles, don't we? I'm older than you, so what? You hear it all the time, don't you? I'm older than you. That just makes you more accountable. It might mean you're stupider than me. If you're older than me, shouldn't you know better? How come you're so stupid? 
Now, you kids shouldn't be talking to each other like that. Do not do that. I'm not setting up a kind of language dynamic for you. But, you know, you could infer that. You got a big brother and he should be far ahead of you. But what we know, and this is what you're about to learn, is really the idea of jealousy and envy is against God. You have to know that when men and women act out, act up, act a fool, engage in what Miriam and Aaron are doing, and Aaron and Miriam, it's really they're attacking the sovereignty and providence and design of God, are they not? God is the one doing this. A lot of times in our relationships with human beings, often too, when we are dealing with the tension that comes through pride and conflict, the kind of irrational arguments that people make against you or me, and sometimes we're scratching our head, what's going on? Really, they're arguing with God, not you. They're arguing with God. They don't like the way God has set things up. Am I making some sense? We're about to learn some, some lessons in that as, as well. But it's very, it's very important for you and I to capture that under the first point. Jealousy is something that you want to you be careful about because if I am asserting the truth, Moses was called first. Moses was called to lead. This is what Micah is teaching us. And I love this, Psalm 33, 12. I want to give you a few more before we move on into a deeper analysis of this. The psalmist says this in Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he has chosen for his own what? That's not only Moses. That's Aaron and Miriam. That's the whole tribe of Israel. Are they not blessed? Did not God call them? Is not God using Moses, Aaron, and Miriam? Of course but in an order that needs to be kept in check. Neither one of them get to do what they're about to do as is going to be asserted in verse two. And we need to be careful about that in our society too. Here, I talk to you guys about thinking clearly. I I talk to you guys about the necessity of having a coherent system of interpreting life, having a worldview that is consistent with scripture and understanding science at the empirical and evidential level so that you and I are not given over to uh, major damning practices of irrational fantasy. We all fantasize. You have to distinguish between your fantasy and the facts. Yes. You have to know how to work. The difference between being a child, I'll say it one more time and I'll keep going. Our children get to work with fantasy much more than we do because they don't have room to actually engage in the real factory of hard physical work where there are consequences. Once you get to an age where you got to work, you got to be careful now because your fantasy can hurt people, i.e. that's what's happening in our world right now. Fantasies are hurting people. Children get to play with fantasies. Grown people don't. And if grown people play with fantasies, please put your flag up and say, hey, I'm fantasizing right now. Yeah, I mean, if you want to hear me, I'm fantasizing. I'm fantasizing that I'm, I'm some big green elephant in the room. I'm fantasizing that I'm some god. I'm fantasizing I'm the Black Panther. I'm fantasizing that I'm this or that. Now we know that you're unhinged on purpose. And I don't have to take you seriously. But once you now want to take your fantasy and force it on me as truth, you are telling me to unreal the real and to reel the unreal. And I'm not going to do that. God doesn't even call us to do that. When we properly handle truth, it actually forces us into the vortex of sound reasoning that grounds us in reality that requires humility. 
There are things that are happening that are obvious to all of us. They are epistemically true. They are factually true. And we got to work with that. Now, we can build hypotheses. We can theorize. We can dream. But you cannot take your dreams now and use them as kind of, uh, you know, bowling balls or, 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 or major pillars to knock down reality in front of you because you want to be something that you're not. You can't do it. Moses and Aaron could not do it. And God's going to show them that here, too. Again, I keep saying to myself, how long was it that Miriam and Aaron back home in Egypt when they hung out with their family which was in Egypt for 400 years. How long were Aaron and Miriam sitting around as little toddlers blaming Moses for everything that they were going through? Am I making some sense? And I'll tell you why. Because they had to actually deal with the fact that he was alive, but he wasn't living with them. They had to deal with the fact that they were operating out of a slave paradigm system under the very system in which uh, Moses was experiencing privileges. Y'all keeping up with me. And so they had to deal with the tension of knowing he was up here while they were down there. See, and that could easily play into the victim mentality that's going on in my culture today. Am I making some sense? And now you want to tear it all down, Mark. Now you want to tear it all down, Mark, because you don't like the cards that are played out to you. Well, I'm here to say that God knows how to take the lowly and exalt them on high. He knows how to abase every high mountain. He really does. And he dwells most of the time with the lowly and not with the lofty. So you might want to think about that. Jealousy to be on the lofty plane is thin air that only the delusional are comfortable with living in. I'm telling the truth. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And so this is a struggle and a tension that we all have to work with. Everybody in this secular world wants to tell you you're, you're happiest when you're elevated. Not always. I've already told you the devil loves to get you out on the high plank of popularity and success only to undercut you and everybody watch you fall. I've already told you that, Right? Before destruction goes pride, right, and the haughty spirit before fall. This is what jealousy produces. Here is the solution under point number one, so point C. Are you ready? Stay in your lane. I can close out the message today now. Stay in your lane. Did y'all get that? Stay in your lane. Two things I want to uh, comprehend here before we move on to point number two. Learning how to stay in your lane requires a lot of discipline. Because people are crazy. I'm talking you. I'm talking about you. People are crazy. Staying in your lane is hard to do when two things are not present. One is the revelation. This is a revelation. Are you ready? That you actually have it better than you think. That, that's a revelation that must occur to you. What must, see, when you meet, and I've said this for years, I know it goes over your head. I don't care. I'm, after a while, I just say either they get it or they don't. I'll meet you at the judgment. <laughs> Listen carefully to me. Thankfulness is an epiphany. Gratitude is an epiphany. A sense of appreciation for what you have is a revelation that has to be given to you. That is not obvious. 
That is not obvious to fallen human beings. You and I are far more inclined and prone to being disgruntled and discontented and complaining than we are going, Lord, thank you for good health. Thank you for a sound mind. Thank you for a healthy body. Thank you for resources. Thank you for my lot in life. Because, oh God, I believe that you chose me right where I am. And if you want me to go somewhere else, you can open the door and move me out whenever you want to. I'm here because you want me here. And I have a purpose for being right where I am. That's an epiphany that most people don't have. That's an epiphany that most people don't have. We find this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Listen to it. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Is that what your Bible said? Then based upon that axiom, most Christians in America are not godly. That'll come home in a minute. See, in this church, you got to think. Based on this axiom, most Christians are not godly. Because if they were really godly, it would show up in their contentment. Am I making some sense? If they were really godly, it would show up in their contentment. Because see, when you demonstrate contentment for what you have, you are demonstrating an awareness of whose you are and the potential of whose you are, giving you everything you need and more. And you don't have to feel like you have to fight and grasp after something Because once you know you are the Lord, you know you are the one who possesses and owns everything. All the cattle on a thousand hills is the Lord's. He can give us all that we ever need or want, but it's rooted in a relationship of being contented with him. Am I making some sense? This is why most Christians are not, they're not godly. Just helping you out. Might be some in the house. You're not godly. You can tell by what's going on in your mouth. You can tell by your agitation. You can tell by your jealousy towards others. This is scary, however, that we're dealing with because staying in your lane is really, again, a profoundly uh, short witnessed, short lived testimony. But this is what Paul said also in Philippians 4, verse 11 through 13. Now, you've heard this before. I want to put another uh, add another concept to this. Now, this is Paul. He's in prison. He's in the Roman prison. This is the area of Caesarea Philippi where he's talking about being in prison for the cause of the gospel. And notice again the set of principles he's operating out of. Again, we don't know this well. He says, not that I speak in respect of want or desire or our covetousness, for I have, what's the word? I have what? I have learned in whatever state I am, therewith to be what? God taught him how to be content in his situation. All right. So I've taught this to our men years ago. Contentment means being able to find everything inside the contents of that space and domain that God places you. It means to find everything within the content of that domain and space that God places you in. When a man is content, he comes to find the resources. When a woman is content, they find the resources right where they are in order for them to have everything they need for that moment. Now, y'all know what I'm saying is true. A lot of you guys have come up through a history where your people were poor and we had to survive on a potato a day. Some greens a day, some cabbage a day. And if we had a piece of meat, we were living large. 
And we thank God for him and said, praise God from whom all blessings flow when we ate it. And God sustained us. Now here we are just shewing, waxing fat, and we're complaining because we can't maintain our status quo. Told you there's very few godly Christians in America today. He says, I have learned whatsoever state I am in to be there with content. So the first one's a revelation. The second one is a regiment. I have learned. That's a regiment. Did y'all get that? Y'all know what I'm saying is true. I'm getting ready to go to my second point. But y'all know what I'm saying is true because some of you have tried to be content and it ain't worked. (laughs) That'll come home in a minute. So you know what, Lord, I'm just going to live on $500 a week. I I, I promise I'm I'm done with um, the extra lattes with three shots. I'm done. I'm going down to regular coffee. And I'm just going to, I'm going to actually only eat two meals a day, Lord. I'm going to miss a meal, right? And, and I'm just going to really learn how to be content. And it lasts about three and a half days. And on the fourth day, you start cheating again. Do you see how hard it is? See how hard it is? And we laugh about it, but if you're not, if you're not careful, there is an imperceptible bleed over between the physical and the spiritual. Your attitude is compromised when you don't have a regimen that keeps you in a state of godliness with contentment. Point number two in our outline, because I could be saying a whole lot more. I could be saying a whole lot more. Point number two in our outline, the deceptive distortions of what? Misperceiving. Right. I've also said it to the saints. I'll say it to you. I don't I don't have a whole lot of confidence that it will mean anything. But the way you see things. is not the way it really is. Just because you see it that way. The way you see things does not constitute reality or fact simply because you see it that way. Right. Your perception could correspond to reality, but they are not equivalent factors. They are not an equation. I perceive, therefore it is. No, your perception could be radically distorted, radically wrong, radically amiss. And particularly if your perception is predicated upon certain biases, certain bits, Certain insecurities, certain drives, certain malevolent objectives, because the way you frame a thing is always going to be the consequence of the grounds upon which you stand in terms of your own self-identification. You're going to frame things in regards to who you are because you want the way you the way you see it to actually facilitate your goals or your desires of approval, of acceptance, of importance. Am I making sense of approval, of acceptance or importance? So if this is true, is it possible that frequently you betray yourself through your perceptions? Is it possible that you can lie to yourself way more than you should? Right. And I would I would admit to you that a lot of people are constantly lying to themselves. I, I love this. this is really true. Watch this under point number two. Look at verse two. Here's the line. Verse two. And they said this is Aaron and Mo, Miriam. Are you there? And they said, hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses. Now, in my mind, I'm going, what? In the world are y'all talking about? What kind of conversation are we having now? 
What, what, is, what precipitated, what drove this kind of intramural dialogue between Aaron and Miriam? I mean, I mean, they're sitting down, it's early in the morning, they're drinking their tea, and, uh, and, and Miriam says to Aaron, why does Moses think that he's the only one the Lord talking through? And Aaron goes back to to little sister and says, yeah, I don't know why he think he the only one the Lord talking to. Can you see it? Can you see now if this is not, you know, these housewife movies and surreal programs with these people way off the reservation. I don't know what it is, but I want you to capture this. This is rooted in a deep seated misperception of who Moses was. Right. People love to engage in fantasy so long as nobody is walking around with a pen busting that bubble. Here's the problem, too, with misperceiving. Misperceiving is okay so long as you also carry a pen to bust the bubble after you blow up that false conception or that false assumption about what that thing is. Now, it it really takes discipline to challenge your own assumptions. It really does take discipline to challenge your own assumption because we live in a world where men and women love BS. We, we love it. We love it. And the reality is, is you need to keep a pen around to bust the bubble so God can keep you grounded in the facts. Because you really can't help people by lying to them and them lying to you. So when we're talking about the 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 misperception that is taking place in our context. I want you to see what we're dealing with. We're dealing with deceptive distortions of misperception. When our lens of perception is flawed, we are not working with reality. We are trapped by unproven assumptions, speculations, biases, and they're catering to our insecurities, as I said. And, And how long was this working with Aaron and Miriam? Because they are asserting by the way they're talking that Moses has a silver spoon in his mouth. Is that logical thinking? Of course. But may I remind you, Moses was in a precarious position from the time he was conceived in his mama's womb. This is Exodus chapter one. This is why our first sub point under point number two is clearly laid out. Moses was born into trouble. Remember that whole group of Israelite women who were under judgment by Pharaoh to kill the men children in the womb. There was genocide going on. That's Exodus chapter one, verse 22. Genocide is going on. Listen to it. And Pharaoh charged all the people saying, every son that is born, you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. Miriam should have kept her mouth shut. You keeping up with me? Yes, sir. She had a clean slate to get away. Now, Aaron, I don't know how he lived, but he should have been counting his blessings, too. See, this is where all this is where these two missed out on the potential of a dynastic uh, 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 trajectory for Moses, Aaron and Miriam, because God had protected all three of them and they were set up to be leaders in Israel. And here Aaron and Miriam are tearing it down by a set of assumptions that are obviously wrong. Am I making some sense? Why? Because Moses is in danger of being killed even after being born so much so that his mother has to hide him. All right, so stay with me for a moment because we're under point number two in this uh, point. Uh, so point B, Moses was raised in separation 
Exodus 2 verses 1 through 5 tells us that his mother put him in a bushel and hid him over by the river Nile over in the, 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 uh, the, the, over in the corners of the water where there's a lot of foliage there, right? You guys remember that? Now, this is really paradoxical in terms of kind of what, what, we, what we might call um, narrative uh, language. And that is she's trying to protect him from a direct sword against him by the government. Okay, but she's putting him over there where crocodiles could get to him. The boy is in danger any way it goes. Y'all keeping up with me? Now, why does she do that? She did it by faith, Hebrews 11 tells us. So she had gotten a word from the Lord that Moses was to live and she was to let him go, that God would protect him, even though the potential for alligators to eat him up. She put him over in the foliage and she went back to the shore and she watched how providence moved in her life. All this to say, can you imagine Moses in the womb of his mother suffering the trauma of his environment? And now Moses is in a a bulrush, in a basket, suffering the trauma of his environment? Can, Can you imagine how mentally challenged he's going to be. Now, not only that, he's separated from mom and daddy, his kinfolk, all his years. Okay, he's in the palace of Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter loves uh, uh, Moses, and Moses is living large, but we know epigenetically he's impacted because he's disassociated from his original family. But his original family is right down the road on the lower tier of slaves. So he's growing up in a constant tension between who he is in Egypt and who he is as a Hebrew. Am I making some sense? He's not really living a great life. He's not really living a great life. Internally, he knows that there was a separation. Okay, so he got, he got you know, adopted parents and things seem pretty good, but... You ask any child that you have, that if they had the, I know I'm going to get in trouble with this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If they had the option of leaving home from you and going living with some wealthy folks. See, I told you I was going to get in trouble with that, but I'm going to put it out there anyway. Whether or not they would do better with strangers who could provide for them than family who would love them, though they would struggle. Am I making some sense? This is a challenge that we're dealing with Moses. I'm arguing, I'm arguing that Moses did not live in such a prestigious situation that it shielded him from internal conflict, from mental anguish, from a real difficulty with his own identity, because not only is he living away from his family, but he's living against his family. Did that make some sense? All right, tells you we ought to think this stuff through, don't we? He's living against his family. And until the day came where that incorruptible seed manifested itself in Moses, which it must do for you and me in salvation. Until the day came, the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 11, at a certain point, Moses came when he was of age. When he was of age, it manifested to Moses that he was a child of the Hebrew people and not a child of the Egyptian. And that is what has to happen to you and me. We have to come of age, be born again, come to know that we are of the true and the living God, and we are not of this world system. That's what must happen to you and me. Am I making some sense? 
See, because he chose you in Christ before the world began. And you're living in this world as an alien. You are a sinner indeed. I'm going to prove that in a moment. But you're a sinner with God's hand of purpose on your life. And so you live in the tension of being in a world of strangers as a stranger. Some of us know that. Some of us know how our life before Christ was such that while we were tearing it up and acting a fool, there was still something that was uniquely anomalous about us in relationship to God's purpose in our life. And it's not intrinsic to us. It's how God keeps his elect before he saves them and then brings them out of their wickedness and they come to discover I'm a stranger in a strange land by the grace of the living God. Am I making some sense? All right, Moses came to that. He came to of age and we're praying that some of you come to age as a certain point too. And so what I am arguing under point number two is all of this gobbledygook going on in verse two between Moses and between Aaron and and Miriam is absolute distortion of reality. So point C, Moses was humbled from the time that he was conceived to the very day that we're on right now. Think it through with me. You're conceived in the womb of a woman in a society where they have contracted genocide for you to die. That's humbling. It's already humbling. Does that, does that make some sense? Now, so you make it out of the womb. If you make it out, it sounds like my country. Doesn't it sound like my country? And you make it out of the womb and, 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 and you have to live in a precarious situation where you can't live with your family. That's humbling. You see your family down the road. It's humbling. It, it is going to make you a little schizophrenic, isn't it? Yes, sir. Right. That's why when Moses finally got of age and he was, you know, starting to fill his oats because testosterone was still working in men back then. Don't let me go down that path. <laughs> he rose up against the Egyptian that was abusing his brother and he killed him. So we do know that Moses has a little bit of an anger issue going on. Don't we know that? And then God had to humble him some more to send him out in the wilderness because Pharaoh was going to show enough, kill him now. And he got to do 40 years in the wilderness. That's humbling. This is why there was a good portion of his inarticulation, which was a consequence was just being out there with sheep. Your language, your vocabulary is not going to get that broad while you hanging out there with sheep. I'm just saying. Bye. Uh, It ain't going to get that broad. You're you're not going to be an erudite, okay? So I get Moses living with these tensions. He got a little fire in him, but he don't want to talk to Pharaoh. Egypt at that time was the greatest nation in the world for all kinds of sciences, along with being what we would call the pinnacle of intellect. And Moses didn't think that he was persuasive enough or, or eloquent enough to deal with it. Humble! Humble! And then God sends Moses to save what we have come to discover is a bunch of people who are trying their damnedest not to believe God. And those are his family members. Those are his real kinfolks. Y'all keeping up with me? Those are his real kinfolks. Aaron is Moses' is real kin. Miriam is Moses' real. All of those 12, those is real kinfolks. Them are kinfolks. You can't get rid of your kinfolk. Your kinfolk crazy, you crazy. Everybody crazy. You can't. And, and then now you got to lead your kinfolk to the promised land. Right? And all the other nations are watching these crazy Hebrews doing crazy stuff. And now the serpent, I told you, you don't see the serpent in the life of the people of God in the wilderness, but he shows up. And he showed up this time to knock the whole thing down. 
And where he shows up is at the pinnacle of leadership. We're right back there again, challenging leadership, are we not? And everybody's, what, what, can you imagine the texts and emails and Twitter files that was running through Israel when they read that Aaron and, and, and Miriam was talking about Moses being married to that black woman? Can you imagine all of that stuff that was going on? Right. I mean, I, it just, that thing blew up. Did it blow up or what? Like a 1.3 million hits. Everybody reading it. Everybody reading it. Moses was humbled. Why do I say that? Look at verse 3. Now the man Moses was very what? Above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. You better capture that. Because God is giving you a, a, a juxtaposition between Aaron and Miriam and Moses at this point. It's helping you actually keep clarity on the categories in the narrative. What I mean by that is when you actually assess all of the factors around Moses, he had to be humble. When you ha- actually assess all the factors around Moses, he had to be what? Humble. Not God called him after 40 years. First of all, he was 40 years old when he was drove, driven into the wilderness. He had to hang out for 40 years in the wilderness. This brother is called to lead these raggedy Hebrews at 80 years old. Most of us didn't retire for 20 years. This is humbling. Now he has to do another 40 years in the wilderness with these same crazy people. This is humbling. Now the person speaking is not Moses, Aaron, Miriam, or any one of the 12 tribes of Israel. God is speaking. And what did God say about Moses? The humblest man on the earth. That should close the conversation. The Lord Jesus is the one speaking, is he not? Here's what he says. Moses is the meekest servant I ever had. You know what that means is God knows that Moses is going to submit to God. Whatever God says, he's just going to do. We can learn a lesson from that. Stay with me. So, you know, the buzz has gotten out. I'm going to show you that in verse five, because the text is going to say, and the Lord came down. He's going to say to Moses, I have heard what they said. Now, whenever God says that, it's not that somehow he just cut on his omniscience. That was always working. God heard what they said before they said it before he made them. When he says he heard it, it means he heard it audibly and publicly out in the blogosphere among the people. And he's taking a position that he is now hearing what everyone else is hearing. Did that come home? I heard it too. That's how broadly this scandalous proposition of Moses being married. And and what's so cold about the saints? Listen, I'm teaching you tactics of the devil right here. Uh, Moses' wife ain't got nothing to do with what's going on. Okay? So Moses got trouble with his wife. Ain't no doubt about that. But God's not stopping Moses from doing what God wants Moses to do because his wife is acting a fool. She is certainly acting a fool. Okay, but now his sister has taken it over the top. See, because you don't you don't really attack your brother when he's down unless you're a snake yourself or unless you're being governed by a snake. Now, you might be God's lamb acting like a goat and a lot of God's lambs act like goats. And we'll say things that we should not say. Am I making some sense? But this one is atrocious because it's pulling down the whole system. Can you see it? It's pulling down the whole system. Uh, uh, His wife, Zipporah, has nothing to do with this. She's back at home with her daddy. Moses is doing the lonely job 
of leading the people of God to the promised land. He's a humble man. I'm here to tell you, he's a humble man. And, and humble does not mean that you don't live with all kinds of internal conflicts, troubles and strains and difficulties. You do. You just don't publicize them. You, you're, not, you're not trading in your struggles for people's, you know, sympathy and, 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 and please. You're not doing, when you're humble, you just do your job and you take it to the Lord. Am I making some sense? Moses was humbled unto this day. Let me show you another way in which he was humbled before I go into my final point. He was humbled to this day in that he's still wearing a veil. A little while ago, I taught you that Moses had come down off the mount with the two tables of stone. He had been in fellowship with God for 40 days. And the glory of God was so imminent in Moses' life that his face shone. Do you guys remember that? It's Numbers 33. Number 34, and when Moses came near them, they shrunk away from him because they did not want to dwell in the midst of the ineffable bliss. They did not want to be a partaker of the very glory that they would have been freely available to partake of by having Moses in the midst. They didn't want to share in the presence of God and its afterglow in Moses' life. And I told you that was a telltale warning that they love darkness rather than light. Are y'all keeping up with me? Right. And I told you that as a Christian, when you are walking in fellowship with God and your communion and your devotion to him is rich and it really sustains and it causes your central identity, your central marker as a believer to be prominent, people are going to know you're a Christian. They're going to know you're a Christian, not because you're going around with a bunch of, you know, Mary Kay smiles and superficial, you know, quips about being a believer. I told you, don't even do that to help the new Christians here. Don't even tell people you're saved. Don't even use any of the religious colloquialisms. Don't do any of that. Did y'all hear what I said? Because we love to create labels and placards and billboards. I'm saved. I love Jesus. You don't have to tell it. Just show it. We're way past telling people we love Jesus. We already know you don't by the way you vote. We're way past that. I already told you most people are ungodly because they're not content. Most people know you don't really love Jesus because you have to put it on a placard. Your love is very minuscule. They shall know that you are my disciples by the way you allow love to prevail in your life. Did you hear what I just stated? Right. I, I told you, though, American Christian, we sell everything. We sell oxygen, we sell water, and we sell Jesus. The Middle East and the, the Far East is starting to say, we're tired of your Jesus. I'm going down a larger geopolitical stratum now. You guys already know it. It's starting to come apart right now. It's starting, All right, we're done with your Jesus because your Jesus looked like Revelation 17 and 18. We're done. You won't know that unless you read your Bible. Again, you know, Christians don't read their Bible in America, so they would never know what I just said. The harlot sitting upon the scarlet colored beast. That's false religion mixed with politics. That's what we have been doing forever. And people in other countries know that we're, we're hoodwinking. We're faking. We're, we're wicked. We're religious charlatans in America. They know it. Do you understand that? And, and so what we're dealing with here with, with Moses, I'm trying to tell you, he's still wearing a veil. He put the veil on in order to maintain fellowship with these men and women that don't want the glory. 
Is that humble or what? Is that, somebody tell me, is that not humble? You put a veil on so that they can tolerate you and your Jesus. And I told you that's what you and I are called to do when we're working in the office or we're engaged in a task. We don't have to go around basking in a way that we're forcing people to be uncomfortable. You can put that veil on and hope that some of the glow comes from under the veil and leaks on out. But let it come out through your character. Let it come out through your attitude. Let it come out through your words, not because of your arrogance or your pompousness or your religiosity. Let God do it all. What a beautiful picture of Moses as a type of Jesus. I only know one other person more meek than Moses. His name was Jesus. And he veiled his glory in his body. The ineffable bliss who thought it was not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took on the form of man, the form of a servant, the form of a slave, and veiled his glory so he could dwell with humanity, even though we despise the fullness of the Godhead bodily, complete in him. Am I making some sense? Right, Jesus hangs out with us now. If he had to, if he pulled it back like he did with Peter, James, and John, we could not stand it. We're a bunch of sinners. We're a bunch of sinners. See what I'm getting at? See what I'm getting at? Moses was humble. See, and I think, stay with me, I'm getting ready to move to the next point. I think that when you do embrace humility like Moses did, people count it for weakness. Right. So when the servant of God walks in the humility and stays in his lane and and does not flaunt his authority, you call it weakness. You find that all through the scriptures and all through society, whenever we have godly men and women who walk in their lane and don't become pompous, peacocky type of individuals, we call that weakness. When really what they are are men and women who are disciplined and constrained and know how to hold in their power only to use it when it's right and appropriate. We want flashy folks flying all around like comic book heroes. And they're frauds every time. So, So we will prosecute and persecute the humble servant. And then when the arrogant, pompous, antichrist servant rises up, We keep our mouth shut. Listen carefully to me. When the arrogant antichrist authorities rise up, we keep our mouth shut. We're scared of him. Did y'all hear what I just said? When the arrogant, pompous authoritarians rise up as pseudo-Christ saviors, creating crisis to drive you to the knees and beg you to submit to them, we hold our peace. Should I stop? Did I hurt y'all feelings? Did I hurt your feelings? I'm trying to show you how, how bad we are our mis- at misunderstanding and perceiving what is appropriate to perceive when it comes to authority. Am I making some sense? So, so think about this. Think about this. Got one more point. I'm done with you guys. Think about this. Think about if we have a pattern of good men and women who want to actually lead and they've already wrestled with not wanting to because when you're a good leader, you don't want to. You're just compelled by the exigencies of the circumstance. 
And, and then when they begin to move out to do it, they get all kind of ridicule and all kinds of ad hominems by the very people that should be supporting them. No wonder we don't have that many people standing up for righteousness. No wonder. No wonder you can't even get the righteous to walk with you. See what I'm getting at? Now, I'm a little passionate with my message because I actually know my Bible to know that it's going to get worse in three chapters. Because Miriam and Aaron just sowed the seeds of corporate rebellion against Moses with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. They're going to say the same thing in chapter 16, verse 3. You take too much on yourself, Moses. We, we be the Lord's people too. We can prophesy just like you. This is what you got going on in this atomized church age you and I live in. Everybody's a preacher. Every woman's a preacher. Every man's a preacher. Every dog and cat's a preacher. We got preachers everywhere. Did y'all hear what I just stated? Everywhere. You got all these self-appointed, self-anointed preachers everywhere. Uh, 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 demanding an egalitarian worldview. But we just learn blessed is the man whom God chooses. And see, when we get to chapter 16, God's going to ask, he's going to respond again and going to clean house. When God's done in chapter 16, ain't nobody going to want to take the lead. But he's, God has to do something now in our account to help us understand the danger of the deceptive distortion of misperception. Because under, under this second point, it's so very clear that what Moses was doing was simply accommodating their toxic mindset. He had been accommodating them from the beginning. You know that when they came right up against the water before they even crossed over. Moses, you brought us out of here, out here to kill us. This man has been dealing with accusation after accusation after accusation up to this point. Am I making some sense? And now God intervenes. And, 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 and this is bad that God's intervening. Look with me in chapter 12, verse 5, verse 4. Are you there? And the Lord spake uh, suddenly unto Moses and unto Aaron and unto who? And the Lord spake suddenly unto Miriam? No, Moses. Do you see the order? Getting ready to show you something. He spoke first to Moses as he did to Adam, even though Eve was in the transgression. God maintains the hierarchy of authority. Look at it very carefully. And the Lord said unto Moses, unto Aaron and unto Miriam, come out, you three, unto the tabernacle of the congregation. And they hurry up and came out. See, you need to read it like that because that's what the narrative means for you to get. The Lord is like Big Papa. Hey! You three knuckleheads, come here. Do you see it? So parents don't get to talk like that today. You go to jail talking to your kids like that today. My kids would move, my kids' feet wouldn't even touch the ground when I talk like that. They'd come so quick. I used to come that quick with my mom, and she only four foot five. Yes, ma'am. That's called respecting, that's called respecting authority when you have to raise that voice. I didn't have a job. I didn't have my own place to live. I didn't have my own food. I didn't even know what, whatever you want, mom. Right, so daddy's calling and he's serious about it. This is not a joke here. And notice God's not even dealing with the crazy people. He's dealing with the crazy family. That's why our message is family matters. He's dealing with the crazy family. Listen to what he says. 
The text tells us, and the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forth. Now, will you notice a separation? Do you notice it? This is daddy talking. Moses, you stay over here because this ain't about you. This is about these two rebellious, deceptive, mentally distorted children that somehow arrogantly assumes they can occupy a position that I did not give them. Can y'all see it? Give me a few more minutes. Notice what it says. Here's what he says. And he said, hear now the words that I tell you. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known to him in a vision and I will speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. Now, this is certainly true. I don't want to go into a whole discourse on the prophets. All of the prophets had revelations of God. And frequently, the Lord Jesus would speak to them. I've told you, whenever God speaks, it's the voice of the Son of God. He is the word of the Father. You must know that. All of the prophets did not have a special personal coming down from heaven of the Lord Jesus. That's what you see in the text, is it not? Who's coming down? Jesus. Jesus is always the one coming down. We saw him come down in chapter 34, stood by Moses, did he not? We saw him come down in Numbers 11, stood by Moses when he poured his spirit on the 70 elders, did he not? I'm showing you how to see the invisible Yahweh in your text. Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it's written of me. Your Bible is about Jesus because he's the mediator between God and us. And when he's coming down, he's coming down to mediate for our good, but he will also punish our sin. You see it? Look at the text. It tells us, and the Lord came down in a pillar of a cloud, stood in the tabernacle and said, come here, come here, Aaron, come here, Miriam. And he said, hear now my words, verse eight. With him will I speak mouth to mouth. That here, this here underscores an equality of relationship. Not ontologically, but relationally. Meaning Moses is not going to have to reach for understanding who God is. He's not going to have to chase God down. The Lord Jesus is right. Watch this. Notice what the text says. I will speak to him mouth to mouth, even what? Apparently. Not in parables, not in dark speeches, not in similes, not in metaphors, not in analogies, not in, not in opaque terms, but very plainly. And the What? The similitude, the similitude, the image, the concrete manifestation of the invisible Yahweh. Who is that? His name is Jesus. Do you see it? The Lord Jesus had constant fellowship with Moses. Did he not? Moses had the privilege of knowing the second person. That's because Moses is a representative of him. That's Deuteronomy 18, 15 in your own time. The Lord is going to raise up someone in the end times just like me. Him, you better hear, because if you don't, he's going to destroy you. So Moses points to who? Did y'all get that? Capture that. That's a key for you to get. Moses and Jesus had constant fellowship in the Old Testament. And what happens in Matthew 17 when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration? There Moses is again, along with Elijah. They knew Jesus. All three of them sum up the totality of your Bible, the law, the prophets, and the New Testament. 
Did y'all get that? The total revelation of God is summed up in Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. That book you got called the Bible, that's Moses, Elijah, and who? Jesus, through the 12 apostles. Y'all got what I'm saying? Jesus is talking here to Aaron and Miriam. This is wild. Wherefore then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? See? Y'all get that question? All right, I'm almost done here. This is wild. You know what Jesus said to them? How come you didn't fear my servant? Who do you think you are? Who you, I know that's your brother. I also know that's your little brother. But this is not about flesh and blood. I called him. How come you didn't fear him? See what I'm getting at? This is an application to every one of our families. This is an application to every one of our families. Every one of our families should be probed by this right now. Because God demands that we respect the hierarchy of authority in the home, in the church, and in the government. Did that make some sense to you? How come you didn't fear my servant? How come you didn't? This is serious with God. Now watch it now. Because I think you guys got the message. I don't need to unpack it that much. Hear it for yourself. Notice again in verse 9. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he what? Now, when he departed, everyone in Israel saw it. Because remember, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam had to go out to the tabernacle. The tabernacle was already separated from the people of God. Stage one of departure. I taught y'all that. So Israel is way down the road looking at what's going on down the road in the tabernacle. And the Shekinah glory was on it. The cloud and the fire were on it while God, while Christ is talking to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. When he gets through chiding Aaron and Miriam, what does he do? He leaves, which is a symbol of God being displeased with the whole nation. This is a precursor to Ezekiel 9 through 18, where I taught you the Shekinah glory leaves the Holy of Holies, leaves the cherubim, the Ark of the Covenant. And once the Holy of Holies is abandoned by the Shekinah glory, it's just empty religion without power. Y'all keeping up with me? Very good. Very good. Something for you to learn. This is why David, this is why David said in the song. Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's why he said it. That's why he said it. Don't play with God. All right. You might be saved. But if God backs away from you, you are empty and powerless. You are susceptible to any and every carnal thing that any other human being is susceptible to except blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. Let me help you. When God backs away from you, you have told him, Lord, I don't want you dominating my mind and my heart. I don't want you convicting me of sin. I don't want you keeping me in my lane. I want to operate outside of my lane. I want to do what I want to do. And if he gives you over to that, please understand you are begging for misery. And it shows up in not fearing God and not fearing authority, which is an attribute of the devil. The devil hates authority unless it's his own. Y'all keeping up with me? Very clear. Verse 10. Let me walk this out and shut it down. And the cloud departed from the tabernacle. Behold, Miriam became leprous and white as snow. See it? 
She went up to the tabernacle hole. She left rotting in her skin. We could go deep into the leprosy thing. We will not. Leprosy was a contagion at that time as it is today. And it was symbolic of the uh, ravages of sin in our body. In the same way that leprosy would start small as a scab on the skin. And then because it was deeper, upper, uh, the, uh, the epidermics of it goes under the skin because it gets into the blood. Um, it begins to spread and the skin hardens and, and there's a very, very gross smell manifested with it. And so the nerve endings are compromised. And so you start losing digits of your body and it's a very ugly, slow, massive death. Am I making some sense? And Miriam was starting that process, indicating that God had brought that curse on her for her rebellion. Now, listen to what he says, because you just need to hear God's argument, not mine. Listen to God's argument. The text says over in verse 10, verse 11, And Aaron said to Moses, Alas, my Lord, I beseech you, lay not this sin upon us, wherein we have done foolishly, wherein we have sinned. There go Jimmy Swaggart again. (laughs) Stay, Stay with me. Moses is the high priest. Is Moses the high priest? Doesn't he have access to God? He doesn't act like it. He's acting like he doesn't know God from the man on the moon, and he's calling on Moses to be the high priest. Things to learn. So here's an application. Sometimes people are so far away from their walk with God that they don't have confidence that they can talk to God. Y'all keeping up with me? So they're so far away from God in their walk, they don't have confidence that God will hear them. And so they will frequently say to you, pray for me. Are y'all hearing me? Right. When you can discern that that's sincere and true, say, I will, and make sure you do it. But a lot of times they're asking you to pray for them because they're not willing to call on God for themselves. And when you pick up that they're really lazy and careless about a privilege that God gives any one of us, then just say, pray for yourself and keep it moving. No, pray for yourself. Pray for yourself. God will hear you. If you're sincere, if you're, if you're coming humbly, God hears the prayers of the humble. A broken and a contrite heart, he will never despise. I'm not Jesus. I can pray for you, but I'm not guaranteed God's going to hear me, particularly if you, uh, if you harbor iniquity in your heart, the Lord's not going to hear you for your sake. He's not going to just hear me, be, hear me for you when you can say, Lord, it's me. It's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. I'm the one walking in rebellion against you. Have mercy on me, oh Lord. Am I making some sense? Don't try to play Jesus. You're going to have to pick up whether or not they're sincere about that. Because a lot of people want to play Jesus. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. Did God tell you to pray for them? Does that make some sense? Yes, sir. All right, so I'm going to help you with that, and I'm going to shut it on down. A lot of times you're engaging in the Messiah complex of saying you're going to pray for him, but you don't. That means that God didn't actually grace you to do it. You're just running off at the mouth. So the next time you see him, say, you know what, man, I said I was going to pray for you, but I didn't. So all the hell that's breaking out on you, that ain't my fault. That's your fault. I, I thought I could pray for you, but it, it just wasn't working out. So I guess the Lord wasn't hearing me or something. Maybe I wasn't honest or sincere. And what I am talking about is the, the profound self-deception that we all engage in 
when we play games with a God who hears prayer. So our sister is jacked up and Aaron is calling on Moses. And then notice what it says in verse 12. Let her not be as one dead of whom the flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. Do you see it? So now the plea is serious. I get you. I get you, Aaron. I really, I really get you. But why did it take all this for you to act like this? Notice what it says in verse 13. And Moses cried unto the Lord. There is that humble brother again. You know, I would have chided Aaron before I went to pray. Oh, oh, so now you, this is the second time, Aaron. Why you, why you, I would have been all on top of him. I would have got my 30 lashes out first. And then I would have went and prayed. You see how humble Moses is? Moses does not want his sister to die. Right. And also what humility does, if you guys have a little bit of time for me, humility is an insulating quality. When, when God grants you humility, I want you to pick up on this. When, when he grants you humility, he grants you a quality of character that allows you to not only endure accusations, but you quickly forget them. They don't stay with you at length. Because humility frees you from the the tyranny of self-importance. I want this to come home. Because the enemy loves to make you important to you. And, and when he makes you important to you, you're, you're now on the path of self-deception. And it's rooted in pride. And when anything challenges that, even people just not paying you any attention. Now you want to make them an enemy. Because they're not paying you any attention. They don't see you the way you see yourself. Because you're not real. The devil helps you paint a picture of yourself. That's a fraud. Now, it's not that people are ignoring you or neglecting you in a malevolent way. They just don't see you that way. You're not all that, dude. I'm not either. What a beautiful thing to live in a world of 8 billion people with God's approval and not needing any other approval but God's approval. I'm almost done. What, what, a, what a liberation. Really, this is the essence and nexus of the gospel, really. The gospel is a God of the universe that is willing to deal with one person at a time in the profundity of a personal relationship with them that so satisfies them that they don't have to start on an ego trip for people to notice that they're saved. Am I making some sense? The Lord is able to satisfy that person in their own individual walk and, and, and give them the capacity to stay in their lane and just do what God has called them to do. And they're not trying to do anything more because they're satisfied with Christ. Right. So very clear. This is happening with Moses. And notice what Moses does. He sincerely pleads with God, doesn't he? Look at the verse. Look at the next verse. Look at verse 13. I'm, I have to get done. Look at verse 13. Uh, and Moses, verse 14. I beg you, O oh God, heal her now. That's, that's good, isn't it? Heal her now. Some of y'all can write that down. Because you got loved ones that need healing. And the Lord said unto Moses, if her father had but spit in her face. I love this. This is what he meant when he says straight conversation between me and Moses. This is God talking straight to Moses. And Moses, this is how offended I am. 
is as if she said something worthy of her father to spit in her face. Now, y'all don't get that in America. Third world countries that understand shame get it. That understand the hierarchy of relationships that honor patriarchy, which we don't do in this world. We do not honor patriarchy in this world. We don't honor it. Miriam had no business being the purveyor of that kind of arrogant, very, very, very toxic, very contaminating racist thought. She had no business doing it. Y'all got that? Because God already knows that that's how we are. We are so hyper self-important that we are xenophobic. We are racist, discriminatory. Everybody is bad but us. And it shouldn't come out of a Christian's mouth. It shouldn't come out. But here, if you want to get upset, ladies, get upset. There's a hierarchical principle being driven here. This is why our country is going to hell right now. Because women have given up their right to simply be women. I'm ready to battle with all of these crazy people. Because I love women. I love my brothers. Y'all know I love my brothers. But our brothers have been so set aside in this world and the narrative going on. Among the left, it's as if men don't even exist. That means we are already way down the decay line of the metaphorical uh, uh, leprosy so that we're insignificant. And the women have not done a well enough job of knowing how to stay in their lane with their own authority. So they're participating in not only killing the men, but killing the children. This is where we are today. If you don't know it, just reflect deeply on it. All of these years of a wonderful opportunity of elevation of our women around the world and particularly in the West. And they wasted a whole lot of that time on self-importance rather than preserving the hierarchical structure. Raise your hand if I'm telling the truth. You don't have to ever come to this church again. I don't I don't care. I don't care because I see it as clear as day. I said, oh, they had. 60, 70 years. My sisters had 60, 70 years of four, five, six, seven degrees, occupying all kinds of positions, going for the presidency and completely neglecting their homes. You can get mad all you want to. I know this is the case. You had a wonderful opportunity to take part of that authority and really do what God has called you to do on an individual level. But it's not about you. For God, it's about family. You ought to see it in the text. The text is teaching us that God preserves family. That's what your text is teaching you. That he's not going to let Miriam and Aaron, and this is how stupid they are, to bring the house down on Moses is to bring it down on themselves. This is the insanity that I'm dealing with in my generation. When you talk about giving your kids up to being chopped up in 50 different pieces. Without even a fight. See what I'm getting at? Right, see, so the gospel is an equal opportunity employment agency where all sinners, men and women, we are all totally depraved. We all need the grace of God. Not one person is better than the other. 
We both need each other. Men need women, women need men. But it doesn't work to be fighting. It doesn't work to be fighting. The devil loves to fight. It's called divide and conquer. I love what Moses does. He holds the whole thing together, doesn't he? Does he hold it? Look at what the text says. I'm way late. And the Lord said to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed seven days? Let her be shut out from the camp seven days. And after that, let her be received again. God answered his prayer. He said seven days she's going to be publicly set out so the whole nation can know. Don't play games with racism and discrimination with God. Don't you come to God talking about discriminating against one group towards another. Don't do it. And I'm going to start with the most prodigious family in the nation. And I'm going to let Miriam hang out, outside the gate, outside the camp, seven days for everybody to ponder it. You cannot move until she's healed. Seven days you will be reproved by Miriam, who is outside of the camp as a separated sinner under the wrath of God. She's a representation of all of us. And I know a man who 2,000 years ago endured spitting and shame. A God who laid upon him all our guilt and our crime and sent him without the gate as well. His name is Jesus the Christ. The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And by his stripes, we are healed from the leprosy of our sin and rebellion and allowed to come into the camp of God, never ever to be separated again. Oh, the name of Jesus, greatest name I know. The son of the living God bore our guilt and shame. This is why we love to call him Jesus the Christ. Amen and amen.